Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I am Joe Patrice from Above the Law and with me, as always, is Ellie Mistalk, who is here. And as we've often joked, he always says that he's wearing clothes. Today, not, not as much, actually. It's the summer. It's really hot in our offices. So I'm doing my thing where I tie up my uh, undershirt like a teenage girl and loop it back through the neck. It allows my belly to breathe and it's very comfortable. Yeah, um, it to give a, a visual, like a, a visual, although probably people don't want it. Imagine if Ellie was Marianne from Gilligan's Island. That's what he's trying to pull off here, and it's troubling. so comfortable. Troubling. It's awesome. You know what's not comfortable? Oh, wow! That's a hell of a segue. Good Thank job. you. What's not comfortable is the fact that I just learned um, recently that there's another thing that my son cannot do because he's a little black boy, and that is apparently swim. Yeah. He's um. going to have to use the shirt like I do because he's not cooling off in a public pool, apparently, in America. Look, to me, there, there are three kind of reasonable ways to look at this problem that we have of cops intimidating black people. Way A, there is no problem. These Negroes had it coming and they don't need to learn how to act right. And you know what? If you believe that, good luck, bro. You know, you're embarrassing your children, but good luck to you, right? That, that's one way. Way two, and this is kind of where I stand, that the police profession attracts a certain racist second-string quarterback who wasn't good at selling insurance elements. And that because of that, we need to rethink how much power we give the police, now, that's where I come down, but a lot of people, cop defenders, will say, no, 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 it's not all cops, it's just a couple of bad apples ruining the, ruining the bunch. And I think that must lead, must needs lead to way three, which suggests that the cops are good, but they're being trained horribly. And so if you believe in way three, if you believe that most cops are good cops and not racist QB2s, then we need to really, really completely rethink how we train cops. Now, my idea, and this kills two birds with one stone, we take all cops and we make them go to one year of law school. If we think training is the issue, one year of actually learning what the law is that they're trying to enforce on people might help. What do you think? Um, I, I did not expect it to go that direction. I think that given that your reputation in the legal industry as somebody who – talks about the uselessness of law school, I think it's amazing that you would, you would try and bail out all those mediocre law schools by giving them a fresh influx of government-funded students. I'm trying to bail out my little black son is what I'm trying to do. See, I mean, I, I think there's, I, I'm, I'm certainly not going to say that's a horrible idea to some measure of legal training, whether it's law school or something else. I, I do think that I kind of come down in a mixture of two and three on that front. It, it strikes me as though there are people who are attracted to the profession who have problems. And I also think that that compounds upon itself. A couple may have worse problems than others, but, you know, when you're in a room with 20 people and one of them's bad and you see that person every day, you start morphing a little bit to meat. And I think that helps, that happens a lot too. I think the other thing, and here's, here's another fun segue. I think the other thing here is this, because of the cop's predatory nature amongst black use, I think that's one of the reasons why, as a black parent, I need to be around my kid 24-7 all the time without allowing him even a wit of freedom. Because if I'm not there, who the hell knows what's going to happen to him in the street? 
Okay, and this brings us to the subject of today's episode, which a few weeks ago we had one of those beginning of the episode grinding of gears moments in which Ellie explained how he's completely miserable in the tank with all the helicopter parents who think that children should be coddled everywhere they go. And his logic for it, which was the only good argument he made in that whole discussion, was that given predatory nature of police, he has to helicopter his son, which... Fair enough. So we thought we would have a whole episode, since we already thought about that, talking about the phenomenon of helicoptering and free-range children and the law. So our guest today is Matthew Dowd, who's a partner at the D.C. office of Andrews Kurth. He also has been in the news recently because he's been representing the Maytives, who you may recall are the free-range parents who gotten a scrape with the police when they had their 6- and 10-year-old unsupervised walking home. So, welcome, Matt. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. So, I think the first thing we want to ask is talk to us a little bit about the Maytive case that you've been involved with. Sure. Well, the Maytive case, as you may know, involves uh, two parents uh, in Silver Spring. They have a 10-year-old boy and a 6-year-old girl. And back in December of 2014, the children were walking home together from a neighborhood park. The park is about a mile from their house. Uh, they live in uh, downtown uh, suburb Silver Spring, which is right outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, in my view, it's a nice residential area. Uh, it has businesses. It's near the, uh, the headquarters of Discovery Communications. And their parents, uh, Danielle and Alexander, strongly believe uh, the value of teaching their children how to cross streets safely, how to navigate their neighborhood, how to walk to school. Uh, but as it turns out, not everyone agrees with that. And uh, while the children were walking home, a individual, anonymous individual, uh, probably meaning to do well, but uh, for whatever reason called 911, and the police responded. And one thing led to the next, and before the natives knew it, the CPS, uh, which is the Maryland or Montgomery County CPS, uh, started investigating them for the possible neglect of their children. Uh, and in my view, this was completely, completely unfounded. Uh, there was never any uh, indication that the children were at harm or a potential risk of harm. And next thing you know, the parents are in this quagmire of dealing with CPS. And part of this stems back to a broader uh, movement, which I think you might have uh, referred to at one point or learned uh, about at one point, which is called Free Range Kids. And right. It's now become part of a broader discussion outside of Silver Spring, even broader than Maryland, I think nationwide. And we've seen a lot of uh, incidents and stories about what free-range kids are, what free-range parenting is, what uh, helicopter parenting is. And, you know, those are the two extremes. Where do people fall uh, on that spectrum and what do people believe is the right thing to do? But more importantly, in my view and I think in the Métis' view, is is at what point does a state agency have the ability to threaten to take children away from their parents simply because there might be some disagreement about how much freedom to give children at particular ages? Exactly. And I think that that's, that's the, the right place to start this discussion is, is where – who gets to make the call, right? Now I've got, I've, you know, full disclosure, I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old. I've got another one on the rate. Let's say I, like my, I let my kid lick rocks. I've read the science. They're talking about how the, the kids these days, they're, they're too coddled. They need to have some more germs in their life. I let my kid eat lick rocks. 
does the state have the right have have a right to kind of come into my home and stop me from letting my kid lick a rock? Now, I think that most reasonable people would probably agree that it doesn't. That that that's a de minimis issue uh, that in my own castle I can I can decide. But once the kids get out in public, literally in the street, do you think that it changes, Matt? Do you think that at that point the state does have a reasonable invested interest in kind of controlling what parents are and are not allowed to do? Well, the, the distinction of being indoors versus outdoors is is by itself irrelevant. The ultimate question, and this is usually the way it's written into laws and in the various states, is whether the children are put at, quote, a substantial risk of harm. And that's the way the, the statute's drafted in Maryland. Now, the, the, you know, I, I think everyone, uh, even the Métis, would agree that children shouldn't be put at substantial risk of harm or actual harm. But then mm-hmm. the question, and the more difficult question, I think, and this goes to your point, and you're trying to take it to the extreme, is like, well, licking rocks. Uh, I, I could actually argue that's pretty good because it's going to build your son's immune system. But other people would disagree. So the question is, at what point... Like my grandmother. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) At at, at what point and what does the agency or state or government have to show to take that drastic step of intervening between the rights of parents and their right to raise kids? And there are a series of Supreme Court cases going back to 1923 that established under the 14th Amendment that there is a fundamental right of parents to raise their kids as they see fit, as long as those reasonable choices made by parents does not contravene some accepted norm or some accepted minimum standard of care for the children. And you bring up those precedents. And one thing that I found when I was doing the research to argue with Ellie about this is those precedents are a little lacking in specificity. There's a stated fundamental right, but drawing out exactly where that line is, like you were talking about, isn't something that these cases do a very good job of. Uh, It's left as the child-rearing equivalent of pornography. You know the state's gone too far when you see it. And, and it doesn't and it doesn't get into kind of changing values and changing mores. I mean, again, I think the the, the free-range parenting issue is, is a, I want to say funny, but, it, but it's, a, it's an intellectually interesting one. But in a much more real sense, I mean, if you just look at our, our, our views about um, punishments, about, uh, about disciplining your, your children, you know, in certain, back in the day, certainly, and in certain communities still, you know, whooping your kids is still thought to be a positive parenting uh, move. In my, you know, hippie, liberal, whatever um, upbringing, I was never whooped. Um, I can't imagine um, um, taking a switch to my, again, to my two-year-old. But does the state have, you know, not to go all Adrian Peterson, but at what point does the state have a right to say, you know, you can't do this, you can't do this parenting technique to your kid. Our mores have changed over the years. I mean, there are a bunch of good points there, right? First of all, in terms of the Supreme Court case law and even the the, uh, case law from the highest courts of appeals and states, these cases are are exactly like pornography in that it it is what you see of each individual instance. They're so fact-specific, the the courts are really uh, disinclined to give any broad guidance on them. And so then it comes down to these very fact-specific issues. And so you bring up corporal punishment as being an example. Now, in the state of Maryland, it is still permissible under the law to uh, corporally punish your children. Now, 
the question then is, well, how far is too far, right? I think, at least in terms of the latest internet outrage, Adrian Peterson was certainly too far because when you're leaving marks and actual wounds on a child, I think everyone agrees that's too much. Uh, but I think, you know, fundamentally, I think what you need to do, uh, what we'd like to do, is try to establish, right, the minimum. Right, the minimum duty of care for the parents, and as long as the parents don't breach that or don't go beyond that, then it's the the burden is on the state or the agency to prove that something has gone wrong. Now, you bring up also the very tricky point uh, about changing mores or changing views, and one of the things that's often brought up in the Métis case, for example, and with in particular with free range children, is that people say, "Well, it's a much different time." today than it was 30 years ago, right? right. I call it a uh, parenting via nostalgia. Oh, that's, that's right. That is your term. And, and I, I agree that you can't just say, uh, because my grandfather did it, then it should be okay, right? Uh, because there's a lot of things I'm sure that our grandfathers did to our parents that we wouldn't want to do to our own children. But what is different between today and, say, 30 years ago is that it's just statistically much safer than it is than it was 30 years ago. And so always in these discussions and in these debates, and you see this on Nancy Grace, for example, there's always the focus on the potential stranger danger issue, the, the prototypical kidnapping. Right? Now, okay. the latest, one of the most prominent studies, which was done, I think, back in 2002 that did the, a, a good analysis of the data, it found that there's about 115 stereotypical kidnappings uh, in the United States per year, right? And so that's 115 out of about 70 million children in the United States. How many of those does Jack Bauer solve by himself? A <laughs> hundred, at least a hundred. <laughs> when you run through the calculations, I mean, you know, rough numbers, right? That's about a one in 700,000 chance, right? And then when you start comparing those odds with some of the other typical dangers that you might be like being struck by lightning or lifetime odds of being killed by a dog bite, those sort of numbers give you a little different perspective, and actually a much different perspective. And you realize that, yes, it's scary to let your kids walk around the corner that first time, and all of a sudden they're out of sight, right? But that's a psychological reaction, and there's nothing wrong with it because that's how parents are supposed to react. We'd be, you know, there'd be something wrong if we said, okay, two-year-old, four-year-old, go out and, you know, walk down Madison Avenue and we'll see you later, right? But when right. you get to the point where they're six and ten and you've gone through the steps of teaching the kids how to walk and how to, you know, navigate intersections and what to do in case something, you know, unusual happens, when you've done that, in a proactive way, the way the Métis have done with their children, then it's a much different situation. And this is getting beyond, I think, what you often see in the press where the free-range kids, uh, that free-range kid movement is is sort of portrayed as, oh, well, let's open the door and hope the kids come back later in the evening. It's not, you know, it's <laughs> like not a, really it, like that. They're not, like, throwing the kids like a boomerang. <laughs> no, no. Although, I want to come back and talk to you in a few years when you have your, your second in the house, and, and I want to see if you want to do that, because I know, I know when, I, when I had two kids and they were younger, I was like, oh, I just wanted to run away from here for a little bit. Exactly. I'm the one who needs the door. Exactly. Joe's been nodding his head like a Pez dispenser while you were talking. Yeah, I mean, it, this this came up in our previous argument about it, the way in which you, you say parenting by nostalgia, but much like the Reagan administration, the world wasn't actually as safe in the 50s as you seem to think it is. Uh, it was ma much worse than it is today, and today, 
statistically, the kids are better off. And I, I, I also just want to throw out the idea that there's some reason to believe that the amount of confidence and life skills you earn by being able to explore and make your own mistakes without someone hovering over you, something that we're losing. And that, that may be the most dangerous change in parenting. I actually right. wanted to, to go back to the stranger danger issue, though, on, on a slightly different thing. What about the stranger danger of these allegedly good Samaritan parents who are the ones calling the cops on these people, right? Because one of the things that, that really has, has I've thought of through, and, you know, my, my, my mother was born in 1950 in Mississippi, right? And that, that's a completely different time and place, place than where I live today. But one of the things that occurred to me is that, you know, back in the day, in those allegedly not so safe 50s, when your kid walked out of your house, everybody on your block knew your kid, knew what was going on, gone with that kid, and was dare I say, in a better position to make a determination about whether or not your kid was in danger or not. We don't have that today. My kid, well, I don't, I don't know my neighbors, neighbors today. It, it is much more like walking down Madison Avenue today than it was in, in the 50s. And I'm not saying that as a way, oh, that means the kids are more, are, are, are less safe. I'm saying that it means that the good Samaritans are kind of in less of a position to to, you know, if it takes a village, the village is in, in, in a less less of a position to make good decisions here than they ever were before. I mean, I mean there is something to be said for the police were the ones committing the stereotypical kidnapping of the Métis <laughs> kids, I suppose. Uh, so, Matthew, you have thoughts on that? No, I, Ellie raises a very valid point, right? Because if you go back and bring up the nostalgia thing, that, yeah, there are more kids around on the street and there are more stay-at-home moms. And so you had more adults in the neighborhood and watching the kids and just looking out on them. And that is an issue, right? But even when I was growing up in New York City uh, and you walk around, you always learn that it's better to be around a street where there are more people than less people. It's just a fact of life. And so what you have to teach your children are those same things. Now, again, it goes back to the numbers. And so the concern, right, is, okay, well, what if someone kidnaps my children and uh, there's no one around to see what's happening? It, it, I mean, it's possible, but again, you have, the only way to have a logical debate about this is to look at the numbers, because otherwise you're left in a situation where you're just debating feelings and emotions and what's scarier or what's not scarier. And if you want to get to the point where CPS has a rational response, then the burden has to be on CPS to actually show some objective evidence of why they have the need and the right to intervene in the parents' choice of what to do with their children. Now, if it always just comes back to some mid-level investigator saying, oh, well, I don't think that there are enough people around or I don't think that this is the right street for children to walk on, that's just a position of disagreeing emotionally about what they think is best for your children versus what the parents think. And we can't, I, I don't think that we can be in a position where the state has that much power to intercede simply because they have a disagreement of parenting style without any underlying objective facts to at least consider. Uh, so th th that's our position. I, I, going back to Joe's point uh, that he brought up before, there are demonstrated benefits of encouraging your children to walk outside, play outside, play among children of their same age or varying ages by themselves without the 24-7 adult eyes looking on them and always helicoptering them and figuring out or trying to break up and solve problems for them. 
Now, there are numerous studies that talk about this. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence, particularly when you get to the college level these days, uh, because at college right now, you're seeing you know, the product of this helicoptering-type parenting. You're dealing with 18, 19, 20-year-olds who, up until that point, have never had to solve a problem on their own because the parents have always been there to do it for them. And yeah, I, I don't know. I'm a little older than you. I'm 44. And part of the reason I got into this case is because I think I was probably raised more traditionally or more under the you know nostalgia method, if you will. Uh-huh. Um, but I also have I also have two children. I have a, a, a 10-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl. Actually, they're 11 and seven because they just had their birthdays this May. Congratulations. Thank you. But I've seen this with my older son where we encourage him, okay, well, walk up three blocks to the grocery store. And I live in, in Northwest uh, DC and it, it's one of the safest neighborhoods in the United States. Now, Ellie would probably make fun of it because it's almost Lily white neighborhood in <laughs> Washington DC, right? Which is, you know, if you look at the demographics, it's an outlier, but at the same time, it's a safe neighborhood. I have no, no reason to, uh, to have concern when they walk around or play in the backyard or go around the block to their friend's house. But when you see them come back and you see this, and you see the confidence in them, and it's amazing. And you know, this is just personal experience. So again, it's anecdotal evidence. But what we like to focus on in this whole debate and this whole discussion is, okay, well, let's look at the benefits of encouraging children to play outside or play in groups by themselves, or, or learn to navigate problems without the constant assistance of uh, parents. Then also, let's look at the actual risks of harm. We're not saying that there's no harm there, and there's no potential downside. But the question is, well, do you want to have your kids in bubble wrap until they're 18? Uh, you know, right. If you do, that's fine. We're not going to send CPS after you. But if we don't want to raise our children that way, then we'll just ask for the same sense of freedom. <laughs> well, one thing that I wanted to transition towards is talking about your neighborhood being uh, a fairly safe neighborhood. Um, the Metis living in a nice residential area. To some extent, one thing that's, that's a little troubling about the whole discussion is the way in which there's almost, to some people, not to all certainly, there's a sliding scale that's being placed on it based on the safety of the neighborhood, which kind of brings it into a, being a corollary to race and class issues, where it's possibly understandable that somebody in a nice residential white neighborhood would let their kid wander, but someone like, say, Deborah Harold, the South Carolina woman who had her nine-year-old play in a park and got busted, who was a black minimum wage worker at McDonald's, isn't getting the same, the press. same, uh, yeah, well, I mean, got press, but, but it, was, it was very different. Like, I went back and read all these stories, and there's a lot more sympathy for the Maytives in the way in which journalists even write about it than there was for the Harold case, which I... I found a little troubling. Um, I think certainly you sound like you would be on the side of protecting every parent's right to do this, but it was an observation I made while I was researching. It's a valid observation, and it, it certainly brings up issues that go beyond the Maytive case. And you know, we sense that uh, actually Danielle Maytive is very cognizant of that, and part of her push in dealing with this case, this case in particular, and I think her broader discussion about the problems with CPS and the, the way they deal with parental choices 
is that she recognizes that she's in a privileged situation and that there are many other mothers and fathers out there, uh, different socioeconomic classes, different races, have a much more difficult situation, a much more problematic situation, and they often don't get the help or the sympathy that you see in this case. Now, for me getting involved in this case, my mainstay is not uh, child law or family law. I'm actually an intellectual property attorney for the most part. But it was sort of happenstance that I got involved in this case. But there are a lot of other parents who don't have that uh, benefit, and, but they need it. And you bring up working parents, single moms. Uh, and so, you know, I've been talking about the safety issue. Uh, and that shouldn't be paramount because that does imply unfairly that if children are in certain neighborhoods, then they're going to have to be watched even more. They're going to have to that be de facto not safe. Exactly. And so, so is CPS going to then investigate all of those parents or arrest all of those parents simply because their children walked outside uh, in a you know quote unquote bad neighborhood and because it's a known crime spot? Those are tough questions, and I'm not professing to have all the answers, but I do completely agree with you that uh, the focus can't simply be on a uh, an analysis of uh, the safety numbers or the crime numbers and say, well, because the Métis live in this neighborhood or because I live in Chevy Chase, D.C., then it's okay for my kids to walk in the street, but because this other family lives in in Anacostia DC or because you know you're up above a certain street number in Manhattan in Harlem then your children aren't permitted to go and play at the park uh, and I, look, and I, I come back to the racial angle. I, I live in a lily white, and I live in Fleetwood, Mount Vernon, in Westchester. And I, if my view on what I'm going to allow my little only black kid on the block um, to go do and go be around. There's where, like, you know, the Trayvon Martin case becomes not a theoretical issue for me, but a really a real practical one. Um, I want to I want to transition to to investigating non-breeders. Um, I feel like like. Uh, Parenting advice, parenting thoughts, I'll take from other parents. Other parents, you know, we're all in the same club. It's when the non-parents, uh, like Joe Patrice over here, start to run their mouth about what I should or should not be doing um, with my kid that, that really gets me annoyed. So one of my examples here is um, I'm on the bus, and this is just after I have my kid, and I see this woman really obviously tired. The kid's maybe three or four. She's got circles on her eyes. She's having a bad day, as all parents do. Um, and so she's feeding her kids Cheetos. You know, this is 9 o'clock in the morning. Feeding her kids Cheetos because the Cheetos are making the kid shut up. Totally reasonable from the perspective of a parent, but all these other, what I assumed, were non-parents on the bus. We're just giving her the snake eye. Just, just all judgmental bullcrap on her. And I'm like, look, lady, like you don't know what it's like to be on a bus at nine o'clock in the morning with a screaming three-year-old and you find a Cheeto and that's going to shut him up. You, you'll give him a whole bag of those things. So Joe, defend your, defend your, uh, your race. I, I mean, <laughs> the only, the only thing I was going to say on that subject is again, a, a lot of the stuff that you've been saying about how you would look after your kids for a variety of reasons that are unique to you, uh, the way in which you would parent for reasons that are unique to you, I think are totally fair, but that just hammers home to me that you can have, you have the freedom to make those decisions 
other people should legally have the freedom to make contrary decisions. And so while I can respect some of the arguments you're making about Cheetos and and getting shot by the police, because I think both of those are valid points. But those are reasons why you can go ahead and helicopter, and but it, it's not a reason why everyone should be held to some legal standard that they keep an eye on their kid at all times. I completely agree with Ellie on this. Pulling out a line from Caddyshack, right? Hey, this isn't this isn't Russia, Danny, is it? Right? I mean, <laughs> right? You want to raise kids as a village, that's fine, but you have to be tolerant and respectful for parents' rights. And, you know, giving kids Cheetos, if it's a three-year-old, to calm them down, is that the best thing for the child? Maybe not. Is it the worst thing? I could think of a dozen other things off the top of my head that are much, much worse and people do all the time, right? Let me ask you this question. Is it worse for the kids to play outside or walk to the park three blocks away by themselves or... Is it worse for them to sit in front of uh, an Xbox and play Grand Theft Auto for four hours? Right? I, I know my view on it, but I'm sure that there are plenty of parents and younger kids out there that are doing the latter. And you know, those parents don't bat an eye at, uh, about it. And I would argue that, that is, I mean, that's much worse behavior to, to uh, encourage kids to partake in those sort of video games. But you know, be that as it may, it's not my responsibility to call CPS on those parents? Hey, that's, look, that's a great question. And actually, as, as a personal matter, it's something that, that's much more, to me, a question that I wrestle with more so than, than the free range issue, in part because my kid is so young and it's just, it's just not an issue yet. But the, but the video games, I play a lot of video games and a lot of times the kid's there and then you kind of realize that the kid is watching you play these video games and all of a sudden you're like, Oh, let's play with Hot Wheels now. Not because you want to, but just you know, I I've I was playing the uh, one of the, we've had a podcast about my uh, playing of the game Destiny, and so I was playing it, and the kid was watching, and you know, I got shot, and the blood splattered in the screen, um, and I said, "Oh, Daddy got tagged." Ooh, that's tag juice on the screen. And now my kid, whenever he sees like in a video or a cartoon or whatever, somebody get like decapitated, he's like, oh, they got tagged. (laughs) (laughs) And on the one hand, I'm proud. On the other hand, I'm like horribly terrified by what I've done. Um, Hopefully, just anyone who might be working for Child Protective Services, you should have turned off this (laughs) particular (laughs) podcast right now. It's, it's a real issue. Last point. So in Brooklyn, they've got a thing where hipsters are bringing their kids to bars. Joe, your thoughts? Uh, those people should be strung up. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, do your every parent should make its own choice um, extend to parents who infect their kids into otherwise adult situations? Here's my take on this, right? So I come from, a, uh, from a, an Irish background family, um, and then when you go back a, a generation or so, the pub in Ireland was the family gathering place. So I actually still remember events being held at pubs, or then the whole family was there. Uh, I, I don't have a, a problem with that. Now, if you're doing it where there are bars or establishments that are clearly adult-geared, right, if I'm the other adult and I'm there with my buddies hanging out on a Friday night, I don't think I want to deal with the crying two-year-old in the corner. Uh, to me, let the marketplace de- uh, decide. If they want to have places like that, fine. If not, then go someplace else. I actually think that I'm going to revise and extend my remarks to agree with all that. I, I could absolutely get behind a pub that 
marketed itself as kids can run around in it. But isn't I that called Dave and Buster's? Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> if, if there were act, yeah, places like Dave and Buster's, if they want to bring kids there, fine. If they want to bring them into the dive bar where I'm having my fifteenth shot of. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't really drink shots. That was actually a dumb thing. I usually drink liquor in a neat form. So if I'm having my third or fourth Manhattan, I certainly don't want to have, have a child underfoot. I often have my third or fourth Manhattan with a child underfoot. It's just called home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, you've been great. Thank you so much. Oh, well, yeah. thanks for having me. This has been a pleasure. Well, great. And reminder to everyone, you're listening to the podcast now, but if you want to listen to it more, start subscribing on iTunes, give us reviews. There's many ways to listen, but that one would help us move up their rankings and would always be appreciated. Uh, thanks, Ellie. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. And thanks to everyone for listening. And thank you to Matthew Dowd for being guest. And that's this episode. And we'll uh, talk to you soon. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.